Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Fichetti. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to be here and sharing my thoughts on something which we thought was a remote possibility, but by the time we have this session here, it became a reality. It's amazing how fast events unfold in the present crisis. On this election day, we are in the midst of an unacknowledged depression, possibly worse than that of the 1930s. The financial mayhem on Wall Street, spilling over every other street in America, nay, in the whole world. In all likelihood, job losses currently reported are only the tip of a monstrous iceberg. When Olivier Blanchard, the IMF's chief economist, was asked the question whether the world was sinking into another great depression, he confidently replied that the chances were nearly nil. He added that after all, we have learned a couple of tricks in the intervening 80 years. So we have, indeed, a couple of Keynesian tricks and a few more Friedmanite nostrums. While we were made to forget the accumulated economic wisdom of the ages. What we have not learned, what mistakes made by policymakers have caused the Great Depression of the 1930s. And we certainly have not learned how to avoid the same mistakes again. Keynesian and Friedmanite precepts rule economics today, all over the world, with no quarter given to traditional economics. In fact, traditional economics has been exiled from our universities. It looks like the fulfillment of the prophecy, those who refuse to learn from history are bound to repeat it. For the past eight years, in my writings and in my lectures, I have been advocating what I call the revisionist theory and history of the Great Depression. In the cacophony of Keynesian and Friedmanite propaganda on promoting the brave new world of irredeemable currencies, my message was lost. Keynes and Friedman 
for all their disagreements on the details how to manage the national and world monetary system were in solid agreement on their categorical rejection of metallic monetary standards. That is to say, money based on positive rather than negative values. Our present monetary system, universally acclaimed by academia and media as the wave of the future, is based on negative values, the value of debt. Keynes and Friedman are both put the blame for the Great Depression on the contractionist propensities of the gold standard. And that is all that is being taught at virtually all universities around the globe about the causes of the Great Depression. It's universally blamed on the gold standard. Now, the proposition which I'm making is put under official taboo. It's not supposed to be discussed at universities or at any kind of inquiry trying to find out about the truth. And this is the proposition. There is no valid defense for giving the Fed and the Treasury the privilege to issue promises to pay which they are neither willing nor able to honor. And in parentheses I add, except insofar as they honor them as part of the check-kiting conspiracy which they have. The Treasury issues the bond. It's accepted by the Fed which issues Federal Reserve credit. And the bonds are payable in with the Federal Reserve credit based on the bond. Now this exhausts the concept of check kiting. That's not my topic today so I won't say any more about that but perhaps you want to <coughs> take notice and think about it. My revisionist thesis is simple. The truth is the exact opposite of the officially upheld doctrine. The cause of the Great Depression was the forcible removal of gold from the international monetary system, including the suspension of the gold standard by Great Britain in 1931 and the confiscation of the gold coins of the citizens of the United States in 1933. To see this clearly, we have to contemplate the main role played by gold in the monetary system, which is this. Gold is the only asset that can successfully compete with government bonds for the savings of people with a conservative frame of mind. 
In other words, gold is competing for the savings of people with government bonds. So as long as gold is available as an alternative to bonds, the public purse is controlled by the people. If they don't like government profligacy, they can sell their bonds and stay invested in gold. This is the only message that those in power would read or understand. The rise in the cost of government borrowing. The rate of interest goes up. The red lights in the corridors of power start flashing. Confiscation of gold means cutting the wire to those red lights. It means the removal of the only effective competition of government bonds, which are the gold coins. In the absence of gold, government bonds have a captive market. They enjoy a monopoly. The government can afford to ignore all criticism of its monetary and fiscal policies. It can do with the public purse as it pleases. Conservative bondholders no longer have a choice. They have to buy and hold the bond. They cannot register a protest vote by selling the bond and putting the proceeds in gold. In formula, bonds minus gold equals interest rates halved and halved and halved again and again and again. There's a basic confusion here. It's a confusion between a low rate of interest and a falling rate of interest. And I have to elaborate on that. Nobody denies that a low interest rate structure brought about by a high rate of voluntary savings is a great blessing to society. What we ha face here is a fatal confusion between low with the falling interest. If the fall is prolonged, then the net effect on the economy is lethal, as it causes the destruction of capital, which unless checked in time would bring the entire economy to a screeching halt. Capital destruction is a subtle process. It's an insidious process which even the victims themselves are unable to diagnose. The suggestion that pari passu with falling interest rates the market price of bond rises is uncontroversial. Everybody will agree with that. 
movement of interest rates and bond prices are always in opposite directions. It's an undeniable fact of the markets. It follows that as interest rates keep falling, bond speculators reap constant capital gains. A reward not for saving, but for gambling. The gains of bond speculators do not come out of nowhere. They are siphoned off from the capital account of the producers. Entrepreneurs are unsuspecting. They don't know what has hit them when they find their capital, uh, when they find their enterprise denuded of capital. The last thing they would suspect is falling interest rates, which they welcome, like everyone else, as a relief. Whatever it is, relief it is not. It is the kiss of death. And I'm going to further elaborate on that because I realize this is controversial, it is counterintuitive. So a uh, uh, more detailed explanation is in order. To see the causal relation more clearly, let us go through the process of capital destruction step by step. As the name suggests, liquidation value is the lump sum it takes to liquidate debt. Should it be necessary to retire it before maturity? For example, in the case of mergers, acquisitions, takeovers, shotgun marriages, not to mention nationalization. The point is that as the rate of interest falls, the liquidation value of that rises. Rise it must because the stream of interest payments originally set when the interest rate was higher is now being capitalized at a lower rate. Since it rep represents a lower capitalized value, it falls short of liquidating the debt. Here's an example. When I repatriated to Hungary and sold my house with a mortgage in Canada, the bank would not accept the balance remaining in settlement of the mortgage. It insisted on my paying a penalty, arguing that the prevailing rate of interest was now lower and the liquidation value of my mortgage higher. In other words, I suffered a capital loss on account of falling interest rates. Here's another example. When the rate of interest falls, 
the market immediately bids up the price of bonds. The higher bond price represents the higher liquidation value of the underlying debt. Creditors will not let debtors off the hook unless they can take an extra pound of flesh for their cons consideration. It is for this reason that falling interest rates, far from alleviating the burden of debt, will aggravate it. The grand scheme to make interest rates fall artificially started by the Federal Reserve breaking the law in the 1920s. I repeat, breaking the law. This is not well known. In fact, it's one of the best kept secrets. Open market operations were introduced clandestinely as a way to inject new money into the economy. The Fed was to enter the open market to buy government bonds, paying for them with newly created dollars. It is important to understand that open market operations were illegal. They were not authorized under the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. In fact, the Act specifically stated that government bonds were ineligible for the purposes of collateral in backing Federal Reserve notes and deposits. Eligible collateral was confined to number one, gold, number two, real bills on consumer goods moving from the producer to the consumer. Open market operations were legalized ex post facto only later in the 1930s and the practice went on to become the chief engine of inflation through the monetization of government debt on a massive scale. It should be noted that retroactive laws are not recognized by the US Constitution. Open market operations, apart from being uh, illegal, are no less a harebrained scheme. Authors responsible for developing this illegal practice were ignorant of its effect on speculation and the effect of the resulting speculation on the rate of interest. Consider what's happening here. Bond speculators are very much alive to the Fed's need to make periodic trips to the open market to buy the bonds. They lie in ambush to prevent it, to preempt it. They buy the bonds first, 
only to dump them in the lap of the Fed at a profit later. In effect, bond speculators get a free ride at public expense. They pocket risk-free profits. The entire playing field of the national economy <coughs> becomes tilted, favoring parasites and penalizing producers. This is a fatal flaw in the Keynesian edifice. The chrysophobic monetary system has a built-in instability manifested by the unopposed bull speculation in the bond market. Here I use the word which may be unfamiliar, chrysophobic. That's Greek, it means anti-gold. So the Keynesian edifice, economic theory, is anti-gold oriented. But that's the flaw that it has, it creates a built-in instability. Because of this unopposed bullish bond speculation which it makes possible. So over time it will just make the economy more and more uh, one-sided and create problems later on. The net result is an interest rate structure that is persistently drifting lower. Well, not in a straight line, as you know, but the drift is quite clearly to lower interest rates. Keynesians, Keynesian economists, pretend that their idol, Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, has made a discovery in justifying deficit spending made possible through open market operations, thus benefiting mankind. But as my analysis shows, the good is distributed by Keynesian economics are not costless. They come at the expense of society's accumulated capital. Capital dissipation is masked by the euphoria of free lunch and pork. The damage to society dawns on the people later. By then it's too late to stop the rot. Irreparable damage has been done. The capital of society has been destroyed. Everybody is made to suffer because of Keynesian profligacy justified under false pretenses. The, the Great Depression of the 1930s was not caused by the vanishing, by vanishing demand, as 
suggested by Keynes. It was caused by vanishing capital. Nor was the destruction of capital confined to the producing sector. It affected the financial sector as well. From 1930 to 1933, more than 9,000 banks in the United States closed their doors for good. Depositors and shareholders lost about $2.5 billion. As a share of the economy, that would be the equivalent of $340 billion today. Economic historians gave credit to Franklin Delano Roosevelt for meeting the banking crisis head-on. Only a few days after he was inaugurated as president in March 1933, he declared a bank holiday and ordered all the people under the jurisdiction of the United States to surrender their gold coins. Although Roosevelt promised to return the gold after the banking crisis subsided, this promise was apparently made in bad faith. No sooner had he confiscated the gold than he marked up its value, leaving people with paper worth 56% less. This neat piece of presidential chicanery was called the valuation of the dollar in the national interest. Yet it was plain stealing, nothing less. As the great blind senator from Oklahoma, Thomas P. Gore, had told the president in the Oval Office in his face. Keynesian chrysophobes, here's this Greek word again, chrysophobes, the uh, hater of gold, they were jubilant. Roosevelt was their hero. They celebrated the advent of synthetic money and credit, laying great stores on the rational management of the national currency. The money supply was expanded and deflation halted. Well, at least so the fable said. In reality, Roosevelt was pouring oil on the fire. Capital destruction got a new boost. As I have already explained, interest rates continued their free fall as the only competitor to, go to government bonds, gold has been eliminated from the scene. Keynesian economists got the fallen god, the gold standard, to kick around. No one thought that the fallen god could, phoenix-like, rise from its ashes in the fullness of times and have retribution. 
It is hard indeed to avoid seeing parallels to the current situation. Interest rates have been falling for 28 years, from 16% in 1918 to 4% today. Or if you take short-term rates, from 22% in 1980 to 1% presently. Capital destruction has taken a great toll on the producing sector, causing a large part of American industry fold tent and seek salvation overseas where wage rates are lower. As far as the financial sector is concerned, up until recently it appeared that the banks might have escaped the death trap of capital destruction. Well, we know now that they have not. Banking capital, just like industrial capital, has also been destroyed by the relentless fall of interest rates. Banks no longer trust one another's promises to pay because they suspect that their counterparty has no capital backing those promises. Banks, in effect, are walking dead men, artificially propped up by the Fed and the Treasury, anxious to avoid the blame for inaction that ushered in the Great Depression in 1930. So today they are working hard to keep credit flowing. But the situation they face is incomparably more difficult than that of the 1930s. This is not an illiquidity crisis. This is a solvency crisis. It is due to an insidious destruction of capital. The Fed and the Treasury are trying to recapitalize the banks by infusion of new capital in the form of freshly created Federal Reserve credit. Incidentally, the Fed is just one of the walking dead men. It does not have the collateral necessary to create new credit to the tune of $700 billion. The Treasury had to donate the bonds to the Fed directly. The last time this imprudent departure from the principles of sound central banking has been invoked was during World War II when the exigencies of war finance were used to justify the bypassing of the open market. The vexing question is whether irredeemable promises by the Fed and the Treasury are sufficient to jumpstart banking in the United States.
There are no contingency plans for the mobilization of gold reserves to recapitalize the banks. Gold is the ultimate liquidator of debt, toxic or non-toxic. Why not use the ultimate liquidator if we really mean business in eliminating toxic debt from the system? And if we really want to proceed with the task of the leverage to shrink the bloated balance sheet of the banks, well, the reason is ideological. The ideological obstacles are apparently insurmountable. But the real difference between now and the 1930s is the incredible deterioration in the credit of the United States, which makes the present situation far more dangerous. The international credit of the United States in the 1930s was very strong. You were looking at the greatest creditor country in history. Today, four score years later, you are looking at the greatest debtor country in history, in need to borrow abroad to pay interest on its outstanding debt. In addition to borrowing, in order to maintain consumption patterns. A large part of the debt is held by foreigners, not under the jurisdiction of the United States and certainly not subject to its taxing power. This is the sword of Damocles hanging on a thin thread. At the drop of the hat, sources of foreign credits could dry up. Nobody knows what will happen then. Yet the dollar is not in immediate danger. Superficially, it is strong and getting stronger. Treasury bonds are in great demand as the so-called flight to safety continues. For a couple of years, I'm predicting, maybe <coughs> a little longer, the dollar will hang on by the skin of its teeth. But the writing is on the wall. The strong dollar will be beaten down by the US government in the course of the trade war, which is already, which has been declared, but we don't read about it very much. <clears throat> and the purpose of beating down the dollar would be to revive American exports in a repeat performance of the 1933 devaluation. In addition, the bill for the unprecedented bailouts will come in soon enough. The government deficit will reach stratospheric heights. When the critical mass is reached and the threshold of tolerance in total indebtedness is surpassed, 
the run on the dollar will become inevitable. In the meantime, serious challenges to the hegemony of the dollar may be presented from friends and foes alike. This is an explosive situation. We are on uncharted waters. Abroad, aboard a rudderless ship. But worst of all, we lack leadership. Those in charge of our monetary and fiscal system are dyed in the wool Keynesians and Friedmanites. They have grown up on Keynesian and Friedmanite bunk, no longer applicable in the 21st century. They were caught completely by surprise, by the fast unfolding events of the recent past. They do not understand what is happening to this country, let alone the world. Nor do they have any idea how further damage could be prevented. The only trade they know is how to cut interest rates, rain or shine, how to print more money and airdrop it from helicopters indiscriminately. Their compass, the, the economic forecasting, the pride of mainstream economics has turned out to be tea leaf reading. The only people who predicted this maelstrom were nonconformist economists beyond the pale. They will not be allowed to kick in the ball. The outlook is bleak indeed. Keynesians and Friedmanites will continue at the helm. Their faulty perception will prompt them to throw even more bad money after bad money. They will beat down the strong dollar. They will be there will be competitive depreciation of currencies worldwide, an echo of the trade wars and beggar thy neighbor policies of the 1930s. As the end of the, at the end of the road lie the ruination of the world's monetary and payment system, economic cooperation, and division of labor. We have been told that deflations, depressions, bank runs, massive unemployment, wholesale bankruptcies can only happen under a gold standard. In a modern government-managed economy, equipped with scientific money-creating techniques, bolstered by the fine-tuning mechanism to manage demand, those ills of society have been relegated to the history books. Well, a few months of this year 
2008 exploded these myths nurtured for much of the 20th century. The stark reality is that we have not conquered scarcity with interest rate suppressing techniques. We have not succeeded fine-tuning the national economy with monetary and fiscal policy. We have not learned how to combine high wages with high employment. We cannot turn the stone into bread. We have only been tinkering at the edges, <laughs> pretending that we can ladle out riches to all comers by government fiat. This is not a subprime, subprime crisis. This is not a real estate crisis. This is not even a dollar crisis. This is a gold crisis. The gold standard was sabotaged in 1933 when the U.S. government reneged on its domestic gold obligations. And again in 1971 when it reneged on its international gold obligations. The gold standard strikes back with a lag measured not in years but in decades. How naive it was to believe that the gold standard could be abused and exiled with impunity. How dense it was to think that under the regime of irredeemable currency basic freedoms can be maintained. How insane it was to embrace the notion of legal tender as the ticket to a bright future. Events of this fateful year, 2008, have dumped Keynesian and Friedmanite economics to the garbage heap of science where Marxian economics, astrology, alchemy, and many other discredited and discarded theories, the names of which have by now faded from memory, already rest. The sooner the world leadership realizes this, the better. With this, ladies and gentlemen, I conclude my address tonight. Thank you very much, Dr. Fegeri, for most interesting uh, address. The Professor has agreed to take questions. Uh, first off, thank you for the lecture. It was very insightful. Um, my, my first question for you is, I've always heard the phrase, never underestimate the power of denial. 
we have generations of Americans and probably worldwide population that does not know of a gold standard, does not understand a gold standard, probably the people that are running for president right as we speak. There's two, two sides of this. They have eliminated the only candidate who did, Ron Paul. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. On two aspects, what can we do as a nation to take care of that, to get an understanding of the gold standards, to avoid a tremendous collapse? Or two, what can we do as individuals? That's where I turn it to you. Well, the first question is, the answer to the first question is education. But the task is just enormous. But there is something in our century which didn't exist in earlier times, and that's the internet. I think we just cannot calculate how beneficial this is to the cause if we know how to take advantage of it. So I'm, I'm guardedly optimistic that we can do something and already you, will see, you can see on the internet that people at large becoming very conscious of the problem and they are looking for answers and they make every effort. I get a big feedback from, see I, I publish basically on the internet which is a good thing because you have an immediate feedback if you published in any other way. The feedback would probably come but would take more time. It would be more difficult. The second question uh, concerning what the individual can do is, of course, you try to protect yourself. I would say be prepared for the worst. So if the worst doesn't happen, you will still manage. But the worst could happen and therefore you could survive. I think, I don't like to use the word investment, especially when it comes to investing in gold or precious metals or gold-related um, paper. I would rather use the word insurance. So if you keep it in mind that when you buy gold, you buy an insurance, you are much better off than those who think in terms of investment. So that's my only advice and probably investment advisors could give you more and uh, better answer, but that's just what I would like you to remember. Gold is insurance. It's investment, sure, but you want to be on the safe side, then you look at it as Thank you. Yes, Dr. Wood. Yeah, Dr. Wood from Virginia. The um, central banks of the world will certainly try to maintain the current system of irredeemable currency. It has been rumored that Dubai 
will develop a gold-backed currency and that Russia may do the same. What will be the, the effect on the dollar and dollar hegemony if and when Dubai introduces their gold-backed currency or Russia produces a new ruble backed by gold or if China goes with renminbi backed by silver? This is, this is very true and in addition to China and Russia you might also recall that the Muslim countries had an initiative. I think it's usually associated with Malaysia and the former Prime Minister of Malaysia uh, by the name Mahathiri. They <coughs> proposed the introduction of the gold dinar and the silver dirham and in fact these coins do exist but they made a very bad mistake and the scheme wouldn't fly. The idea was that they could just create a world currency system independent of the dollar uh, based on these coins. The mistake they made and I had a suspicion that Russia and China would probably make the same mistake if they ever reached that point to create these gold and silver coins, that they did not open the mint to gold and silver. So as a consequence, the coins, the dinar, the gold dinar, and the silver dirham are souvenir coins, good conversation piece, good keepsake. You give it on birthdays to relatives and things like that. <coughs> but it's very naive to expect that th these coins will ever circulate if you are not prepared to open the mint to gold and silver. Now what does that phrase mean, to open the, gold, the mint to gold and silver? It means that the government of that country is prepared or in fact actively invites the whole world inside and outside of the country to come forward, bring their gold and silver to the mint and the, the silver and gold will be coined, will be struck into coins, the same fineness, the same weight, free of charge. So actually it's a burden on that country. They have to subsidize because the cost of minting these coins is not going to be charged to those who bring the gold. This can be done, especially as long as the price of gold and silver fluctuates. And that becomes technical and I don't want to go into that. I'm just saying that because of that cost of producing the coins, the 
scheme won't fly. Why not? Because people will not bring the gold and silver to the mint unless they know that, and not only that, but assuming that they have the coins, they will not spend the coins. See, they have to, you have to persuade people to spend those coins, and they will not spend the coins because they don't see how they could replenish the coins after they have spent them. So in other words, the coins will not circulate unless there exists a firm commitment on the part of a credible government to keep the mint open and there will be a flow of gold and silver to the mint and then when the saturation point is reached, people will spend their coins and then after probably a few years, these coins will be part of the circulation, can be used to finance world trade, world development and so on. So that's my answer. I've been thinking about this problem hard and long enough and that's the answer I can come up with. It's, it's not an easy problem, and it's amazing that these countries, some of them very powerful, like Russia and China, uh, China in particular is very rich, with all these foreign currency reserves, they did not have the wisdom. Now, oh yes, you, your question also, uh, had this part that suppose it happened all the same, what would be the consequence as far as the dollar and the United States is concerned? Uh, the effect would be uh, that the dollar will fall out of favor if they approach it the right way. But since they don't, this is an academic question, because I, I don't see any sign that uh, these countries will do it the right way. They will try, do this and that, but unless they do it the right way, meaning opening the mint to gold and silver, uh, this danger doesn't exist. And I think the dollar will uh, have to run its own course. It would not be helped by these other countries bringing the gold standard back. Yes, Edgar? Uh, how much gold is out there? Is there enough to recapitalize the banking system? Um, well, the, there are estimates, various estimates, uh, and uh, you, I, I, I'm not prepared to yeah. and, and second, and second, you know, it is my perception, it would be cumbersome to do this process. And uh, could we use the derivative instruments as a way to back the deposits with instruments like futures and gold? <laughs> well, make that an accounting uh, in the statement? Well, we, we have been doing that very, very hard. We're trying to do that, and uh, 
results are miserable. The derivative, um, this uh, derivative tower, which is threatening with collapse, is uh, is huge. It's apparently, according to some estimates, in the order of a quadrillion dollars. That's one thousand trillion dollars, which is far more than uh, any kind of economy, you know, if you take GDP or the amount of uh, all the stock markets of the world, of all the real estate, this is much greater. Yet, oh yes, and part of that derivative tower is gold, is gold, you see? So there is no shortage of these paper golds. And that's exploding with the rest, but it, it is not uh, not doing any good. Now, if your question concerns your thought that there is not enough world in not enough gold in the world, then I have news for you. I think this is a non-issue. It's a non-starter. But there is another answer to that kind of anxiety, which is the clearing system. There is no set limit on the amount of credit which can be based on a fixed amount of gold, because the clearing system could be improved, as it has been improved throughout history. I'm not worried about the amount of gold. Uh, that it's not sufficient to put the world on a gold standard. I don't think that's the real issue. It's a much more important issue what we can do, such as education. This is, this is much more basic. The, the physical factors are there and they are sufficient, but there is not enough knowledge, not enough understanding in the world to go into that direction. So much damage has been done by the Keynesian and Friedmanite um, um, economies, um, the economics, uh, that we have this educational task. Like Fulton? Yeah. On the issue of uh, whether there's enough gold, as you said yesterday in your lecture at Santa Clara University, at uh, the Civil Society Institute event, you were talking about bills of exchange. So a lot of transactions, you don't need the physical gold to have the transactions. People would have bills of exchange or banknotes that are redeemable into gold. And most transactions, just like today, uh, you don't use uh, uh, paper money for most transactions. People pay by check and so on. So a small amount of gold can be the basis for a large amount of transactions with bills of exchange and other medium ultimately uh, you know, tied to gold. In one word, it's clearing. clearing the yes. clearing system. Yeah. But people don't understand maybe what clearing means. Yeah. Well, clearing simply means that, that uh, the actual transactions do not have to be made, uh, actual exchanges do not have to be made with physical gold. Uh, 
because it's only you. Everybody is buying and selling at the same time, and there's no need for gold to exist <coughs> to the same amount as your purchases. It's only the difference between your purchases and sales which has to be financed. So uh, the rest is clearing. The rest is clearing. The, the uh, purchases and sales cancel out. We don't need gold for that. Just the difference. And, uh, and the difference is usually very small. It's only in uh, case of crisis like we have now that the difference becomes great and this creates problems with clearing. Yes. yes uh, in the 1930s, uh, the depression was uh, deflationary in nature. If we yeah. have another depression, uh, will it be deflationary or inflationary? And if it's inflationary, why do you think it'll be inflationary? Yes. Uh, I think we have a deflation right now, and uh, we are going to have deflation. It hasn't run its course yet, so we are going to have more of it. A lot of money is actually being destroyed by these bankruptcies, and the F Fed and the Treasury are working over time to replace this money which has been destroyed and the question is can they keep pace with it or can they overshoot which is a possibility after all their their economic knowledge is not all that great so they may be overshooting and of course, the answer to your question depends on what the Fed and the Treasury will do. Now, I am not excluding the possibility of hyperinflation of the type which Germany went through in the 1920, 1923 and other countries going back to say the French Revolution, the Assignats, Mandats, and lots and lots of examples. But I don't think that's imminent. A lot of people expect this to happen in a short order. The dollar could go the way of the Reichsmark of Germany, 1923. I don't think that's happening, at least not yet. But it could happen. And uh, it's just too hazardous to predict how it will happen. I'm rather cautious. I, as a f matter of fact, I do see the deflation right now. This crisis did bring it up, out. I did see it before that it was coming, and I had a lot of a lot of argument. People were laughing at me, that, saying that look, all this money which the 
Fed is pumping out and they'll show charts and uh, use all kinds of arguments that this is quite clear that we have a hyperinflation coming. I've heard rumor that uh, the Amero has been uh, engineered as a possible replacement of the dollar uh, when the dollar loses credibility. Just another fiat currency, but kind of like uh, the shell game, I guess you might say. Yes. And uh, it, this would be a, uh, the North American Union with, with Mexico, U.S., and Canada merged into one, mm. like like uh, the European Union we'd have, this North American. Yes. And, uh, there has been speculation that uh, there might be some percentage of gold uh, uh, attached to the value of the Amero to get people to accept it as, as an alternative currency. Have you given any thought to this? Or? Well, these are rumors, and nothing official has been announced. So there are all kinds of possibilities one would have to look at the proposal in details, and since there is no official proposal, it's anybody's guess. Mm -hmm. But if you take the example of the euro, which is apparently the, serves as the model for the Amero, right. then uh, I think you have to say that it's not working, at least not won't work in the long run. The euro is already in trouble. And uh, uh, just to give you one example, the euro is supposed to be completely homogeneous, completely fungible, quite independent of which particular country or the central bank of which particular country issued it. And in fact, you need a magnifying glass to see the mark on the banknote which country issued it. But people got wise to it, because right now, this I'm reporting this to you as a, an actual fact, People are sorting out the euro banknotes in Europe and they spend the ones issued by countries such as Greece, Italy, Spain and maybe a few others and they are hoarding those banknotes issued by Germany. You see? You see? This is an actual fact. Because people don't trust the banks in Europe any more than uh, they trust the banks in the United States after this crisis has started. So, but people do trust paper money. They want and, and they don't care about these deposit insurance schemes because they know that when the trouble comes, it may take a long time for you to get your deposit insurance. So they prefer to have the banknotes close by 
So in case of emergency, they can spend it. But they are not doing it indiscriminately. They are, this is Gresham's law, right? They spend the ones which they don't trust and keep the ones which they trust more. So uh, the Amero is, oh, oh, yeah, I, I was going to say that. The Euro has a provision of gold coverage, but that's for the birds. You can't get gold at a fixed price from the central bank. It's, it's window dressing. It's not f the gold backing of the euro is not for you. It's for the birds. So, <laughs> so I, I don't think the Amero has a, a, a promising, if, if it's true that there are plans to that effect. I think the example of the euro is not encouraging in this respect. Yes, uh, Kevin? It's obvious this past century, the Western world bought into more of a Keynesian monetary theory. Do you think the Western world, do you get the sense that more on the Eastern side, they're a little more open-minded about the gold standard and possibly the real bills doctrine, and as they influence more control, say, in the financial world order going forward, say, that meeting happening in a couple weeks, do you think possibly the Eastern world will be able to affect things and almost act more as a rudder on the ship. Eastern Europe? <coughs> no, more, more Eastern. Do you think Asia. the Chinese say in the Russian? Well, you are talking about the Chinese. Yeah, from an education perspective, do you think they're more open-minded to the gold standard and the do real you, bills doctrine? Do you mean the leadership or the general public? Both. Just education in general for society. As far as the general public is concerned, the situation is not any better and maybe even worse than it would be here or in Western Europe for that. Actually, Western Europe is probably the most enlightened in this respect because countries uh, like France, Germany, and uh, a number of others have gone through this hyperinflationary experience within, li within living memory. And even the younger generation got it handed down to them, the consciousness, the awareness from their parents and grandparents. This is completely absent in the United States. And uh, I, I don't think it is any better in, in, the, in the Asian countries. Now, when it comes to the leadership, that's very interesting because it seems to me that there is an infight in countries like Russia or China. There is some awareness of, uh, of the problem, of the, the necess necessity of metallic backing the currency, so there are representatives, but then there are those who want the status quo. So they are fighting and fighting it out and it's not possible. But it could be true also in this country. We don't know. It doesn't seem to me that there's a 
serious core of people who are knowledgeable about gold. Uh, these people have been fired or retired a long time ago. And certainly the younger generation uh, <laughs> didn't have a chance to learn about it. So it's, it's really anybody's guess. The, the, the situation is not, uh, the picture is not encouraging. Dr. Gasparin? Well, I'd like to thank you for sharing your insights with us here tonight. And um, since the founding of this republic, thinkers such as you have been concerned about possible threats to the economy of the United States. And uh, for example, 200 years ago, when Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to his Secretary of the Treasury, and I'd like to just briefly quote up a section from that to show you what he was concerned about. And he said, he said, I believe that uh, banking institutions are more dangerous uh, to our liberties than standing armies. And if the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation and then by deflation, um, the banks and the corporations that will grow up around the banks will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent that their fathers conquered. Now the question I have for you is, I don't think you quite see it the way Jefferson did. And I would like to ask you if you had to give one reason and a principle reason why we have arrived at our current economic crisis, what would that one factor or reason be? Is that a fair question? Yes, yes. Well, uh, irredeemable currency. And, uh, and Jefferson realized that if That's irredeemable currency <coughs> It has to be managed, you see, and who can manage it? Obviously, it's the bankers. So uh, there is, this is something which cannot be trusted on the bankers. There's a saying that uh, wars are too serious a matter and it cannot be tr entrusted to the generals. The same way, the monetary system cannot be entrusted to the bankers. The United States Constitution is an admirable document because it did establish the U.S. Mint. It did not establish a central bank for the United States, but it did establish the U.S. Mint. And what this means is, very few, few people realize that it's the people who create money or extinguish money. People do create money if you have the Constitution, if you did have the Constitution as it was established. People would take their gold and silver whether from the mines, or from jewelry, or plate, or what have you, to the mint. And the mint would give them the coins. So it w would be the people who decided 
actually how much money should exist. But people can also reduce the amount of money by melting it down or exporting the coins. Under a gold standard, they are free to do that. So if anybody thinks that there is too much money in circulation, well, they just take their gold and export it or melt it down and use it for jewelry or this or that. So it's the people who create money, not the bankers. The bankers are servants. They are not the master. And that's what Jefferson is talking about, and that's what we certainly haven't got today. Yes? Um, hypothetically, if the United States was to revert to a gold standard, what would be the best way to do that that would be, I guess, least traumatic to the economy? Would it just be a simple matter of saying, all right, a dollar bill is now worth seven, or one ounce of gold is now worth $750, as it was earlier today? Or is there an intermediate step that has to be taken? Or what would be, I guess, the <coughs> most intelligent way to do it without sending the economy into shock? Well, uh, this is an excellent question. And Thank you. Uh, I would take, <laughs> take another address uh, to answer it, but let me just point out something to you which I think is, is very important. And this is the following. The, uh, the, the, it's not, uh, not reasonable to expect that the conversion can be made overnight. The way I would see it is that the, there would be a parallel system for quite some time, maybe a year or possibly longer. When gold coins and the various clearing instruments based on the gold coin would circulate. But at the same time, the Federal Reserve notes and the Federal Reserve credit would also work. However, the legal tender provision has to be discarded. So in other words, the Federal Reserve notes would not be a legal tender. Nobody could force somebody else to accept it in payment. Private parties would have to make contracts. And as a consequence of that, the Federal Reserve system would be compelled to compete with gold. Let the best currency prevail. <coughs> Let's see what the people want. Would they want to make contracts in Federal Reserve notes if it was no longer legal tender? Or would they prefer to make contracts in terms of eagle currency, the gold eagle currency which the United States Mint would provide as the Constitution. Well, if you eliminated legal tender laws, wouldn't that immediately uh, crash the demand for Federal Reserve notes? I don't think I so. I that's the idea. I because you could argue that the dollar will collapse now because of the Chinese and the Indians have a lot of dollars. They will just cash in. 
but they don't because they think that they would rather take losses, absorb the losses, and, and keep their market share. They are not prepared to chuck the dollar. Now, ultimately, probably they will, but it's not immediate. So I don't think the uh, Federal Reserve notes would die a sudden death. I don't think so. <coughs> you mentioned, uh, I think, uh, something about uh, recapitalizing the banks. Uh, mm -hmm. Will you speak to, to that? How, how should the banks be recapitalized? Um, well, they try to do that in terms of redeemable promises. I don't think that would work, because if it could work, it would have worked by now, and this crisis wouldn't have happened. So uh, the conclusion which I'm suggesting is that the banks would have to be recapitalized with gold. And the way I see this could be done is that the banks would issue shares, brand new shares, which could be bought with gold. <coughs> so those who don't have gold and want share new shares of these banks, they would have to buy the gold and then convert. So there would be some, uh, there would be a pool of these gold shares out there in society. Uh, it's a detail which you could discuss if you wanted to, that the treasury gold, part of it could be used to start this process so that the treasury would acquire some of these shares. But by and large, the shares would be pub publicly distributed. And I'm even suggesting that it would pay a dividend, a fixed dividend, at a low rate of interest, say one-tenth of one percent. But Again, this is uh, subject to uh, discussion. You may or may not like it, and I don't think this is a necessary thing, but it would help if uh, a very small dividend would be paid to the owners of the new, new uh, shares. What I'm suggesting to you, however, is that these bank shares, the new, the gold shares of the banks, would start circulating. They could be used for payments here and there, ever wider circle. So, I, I, I think the word gold standard is a red cloth. It would create a negative reaction. If you went all out and started advocating the gold standard. And therefore it's a non-starter. However, what we do here, if we issue, the, if, if the banks are recapitalized in terms of gold, is <coughs> to bring back the gold standard through the back door not even mentioning, because these bank shares would start circulating and 
they would squeeze or the crowd they would crowd out the Federal Reserve notes and the Federal Reserve credit out of circulation. So I, I mean, obviously, a lot of thought would have to be given to this problem. Uh, I've been thinking about this ever since the crisis became so serious, but I so I don't want to leave you with the impression that this is just an off-the-cuff remark on my part. I have been thinking about that, but I admit a lot more thinking has to go into this. But that would be a, a, a reasonable way to solve the present problem. Um, do you think that uh, a clearing system, as, as you've discussed uh, in your other talk, would be necessary um, immediately in order to make this transition? Yes, it would, and uh, I might add it is something you don't have to worry about because that clearing system would rise spontaneously unless the government or the central bank tries to suppress it. Because this bill circulation historically has arisen spontaneously. There's no legislation, there was no government uh, directives or anything. It was just the problem how to finance the movement of consumer goods which are in urgent demand from the producer to the consumer. It takes time and sometimes it's a long journey like overseas uh, producers supplying the market here. It might take uh, not just time, but also uh, sh shipping and travel. So the market did find the answer. The supplier of consumer goods who sold to the wholesaler build the wholesaler. The wholesaler didn't pay cash for the supplies. He just endorsed the bill and gave it back to the supplier. And the supplier could pay his own suppliers with that bill, which had been endorsed by the wholesaler. So the bill started circulating spontaneously, and this would happen again. With the current continuously uh, lowering rates of interest by world central banks, and the idea that falling interest rates leads to capital destruction, I don't know if you can answer this, but what is the end point? Because we see continuously falling interest rates leading to continuously uh, progressive levels of capital destruction. Is there an end point to that? How does it stop? Does it go until all capital is destroyed, leading to sovereign default? I'm curious your thoughts. Are you worried about that once interest rates get close enough to zero, then this is the end of the world? No, no, no. <laughs> I'm curious about what might happen. Well, I, I was careful not to say that interest rates fall to zero. I was careful uh, to say that they get halved 
and halved and halved again and again and again because that could continue indefinitely. You, if you decrease the rate of interest by one-tenth of one percent, then after ten steps you reach zero and that's the end. But halving the rate of interest can continue indefinitely. And um, I think that's what is happening. There is no end to this and therefore the depth of deflation and depression are, it's not limited, it's, it's just an endless destruction, uh, a, a very uh, debilitating process uh, which one has to avoid. Well, do you have any comments about Japan? No, Japan has been in a recession for more than 20 years. They lowered the rates from 0.5% to 0.3% recently. Um, is Japan sinking? I, well, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> it lasted a lot. And, and uh, uh, the United States is following Japan very closely, and this is not being observed by uh, the economic economist's profession or the financial journalists, but that's what's happening. And uh, the yen carry trade is the mechanism whereby the mestesis works. The United States is importing deflation from Japan. And uh, this is not healthy at all, and it should Actually, I think there's a conspiracy between the Japanese Central Bank and the Federal Reserve. They encouraged this carry trade. It helped postponing the crisis, and they were hoping that they could postpone it forever. Well, it turned out that they couldn't. So what we see today is the end of that process. Japan is not out of deep water and on the other hand the United States is getting into hot water. Thank you. Uh, one more question is a lot of people that are against the concept of gold look at the example of the last couple months where uh, economic crisis is in full-blown proportions and the, gold, the price of gold dropped from a thousand dollars down to a near seven hundred and fifty dollars so they say that it's not economically you know it doesn't have that reserve of last resource value anymore and it's just like any other commodity I, I'd love to hear your comments on that <laughs> well uh, the variable gold price is not a proof of the fact that the value of gold is unstable it's a proof of the fact that the value of the dollar is unstable. And uh, it could be that the dollar gets stronger and then the gold price drops, but this has nothing to do with the value of gold as such. <coughs> There's more demand for dollars, <coughs> it will show up in the gold price. But to make conclusion, make a conclusion that you see that gold is no good anymore, it might have been historically true that 
gold was stable, but it's no longer stable. This argument doesn't hold any water. With the reverse of that, the you know physical gold is very hard to come by, especially here in the United well, States now. Well, there you are. But supposedly it's going down. Well, anywhere in the world, <coughs> it's true that physical gold is not available. So paper gold is available, but that's not solving the problem of those who need gold for insurance purposes. Yes, I, I, I guess you, you made your, your point very clear that the most government and the politicians are well educated in Keynesianite and what's that, Femanite? Femanite. And, and not um, the people that advocate the gold standards are either retired or not you know, actively in uh, educating the, the politician to get back to the, to the gold standard or, or some form of the gold standard. Uh, you know, given that, and we're in this crisis, and yet we there are still people talking about it. Uh, what's going to what's going to happen? Well, the, this uh, election year proves that <coughs> the damage is is too great to the education problem because this election campaign and the debate of the candidates and some did not even scratch the surface of the problems. They talked about all kinds of things, most of them really irrelevant to the great problems which this country and the world has, these economic problems. So uh, what will happen? Who knows? Uh, it may be that we just have to go to the bitter end of the road. So let me close with just one idea. Quoting Benjamin Franklin, who said that experience runs an expensive school, but fools will learn in no other. So th that's what the politicians and you know they are unable to learn from experience so they are going to pay the price and we are going to pay <laughs>